Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Welcome to this edition of the Out of the Question podcast. I'm Andrea Schwartz, joined today as usual with Father Steve Macias. Hey there, Andrea. This is a great Friday podcast, and I think we have a very special topic today that will be of interest to a lot of our listeners. So today we're fielding a question from one of these listeners who asks, how does a Christian run for political office to best get elected? Do you tell people what they want to hear or tell them what they do not want to hear and risk not getting their vote? Could one expect to get elected as sheriff, for example, by campaigning to eliminate the local police as it currently exists, or could a candidate speak to eliminating property tax or public schools as unbiblical, knowing it could reduce revenue for the local municipality? So not only is Steve qualified to answer this question from a biblical perspective in terms of his role as a clergyman, but he also has the distinction of having run for political office himself in the past. So Steve, what do you have to say to this listener's question? I have to say uh, the listener is asking a question that, of course, has several questions in it. There are, of course, Christian traditions who don't believe in any type of, of political service. And what I think is really significant about Reconstruction is that it recognizes that Christian service in politics, you know, whether it's local or national or, or federal, any type of representative government is a Christian idea. So fundamentally, the idea of having representative government is not something that comes from Rome or from Greece or democracy, things like that. The idea of government is first established by God through his covenantal nature. You know, there's this Trinitarian covenant, but then also in the creation of man, there has always been a hierarchy of representation, primarily, as Rushdie would say, with the family and then with the state, the church, these other institutions. And so I think implicit in this conversation is, should Christians be involved in government? And the answer is inescapably, yes, Christians are to govern. And it begins, of course, with the Noahic covenant with Noah, who is you know, the first king who is given the authority to lead the people with the death penalty. But inside this question, there are some other ideas. And I'm going to let you interrupt me here in a second. But the idea is that today, our political structure has gotten so far away from even the Old Testament or our Christian foundations as America, that we have to question how in the world we, might we get elected. And I think that's the wrong question. It's assuming that there might be defeat, so therefore we have to change our message. The principles of Reconstruction say that the values of God are eternal and that they're for the good of every person, right? So Christian values aren't just good for people who believe in Jesus. Christian values are good for humans. And so I think starting with that perspective is going to change how this question is answered. Well, I think that is very insightful what you just said, because it's possible to look at circumstances too closely, Many people think that we live in the worst era ever, that it's never been worse than it is today. And yet, if you're a student of history, you know that's just not so. So I think this questioner is basically saying, God's law 
does tell us that we shouldn't be deceptive. We should tell people what we plan to do, and we should outline a program that's in line with Scripture. But since most people don't buy into that today and have been embraced by humanism, then you could spend a lot of time and effort trying to get elected, but it would almost seem like a fluke if you succeeded. That's right. And there is some wisdom here that I'm going to borrow from a name. And there's a couple books he's written. His name is uh, H.L. Richardson. He was a senator here in the state of California. And some people might know H.L. Richardson because he was the, the founder of Gun Owners of America, the answer to kind of the mediocrity of the NRA. But H.L. Richardson wrote two books that I think are very helpful on this subject. And one of them was, What Makes You Think We Read the Bills? And this he talks about people who become senators, become state legislators. To answer this question, uh, when they actually get there, what do they do? And I think the answer for people who have not been in politics is much different than the people who have been on the other side. The other book that he wrote that that's going to be the kind of my answer to this question is called Confrontational Politics. And this book really shaped my view of politics along with Rushdie, you know, 10 years ago. And the idea of confrontational politics is something we hear we hear a lot, and that is the camel's nose under the tent. So whether or not you think Christians can be elected or you're optimistic about the future of a Christian political identity, the enemy, the humanists, have this idea and this agenda that they're going to slowly compromise with the non-humanists and work the nose of a camel underneath a tent. And you've probably heard this image of a, of a camel who says, uh, can I just put my nose under the tent or just my head under the tent, just my neck, and pretty soon the whole camel is inside the tent. That is the political strategy of the humanist and has been the political strategy of the humanists for 300, 400 years fighting against Christian West. So I think part and parcel of the idea of a Christian running for office is the understanding of what the office entails understanding of who the opposition is likely to be and having a firm foundation in biblical law to know how to maneuver through certain situations. Now, it was Rush Dooney who had me read the book, What Makes You Think We Read the Bills? And it's one of the funnier books I've ever read in terms of some of the, the anecdotes he gives about his time in the legislature in California. But it isn't like black and white that says, if you run for office, you have to be reading the Ten Commandments on a regular basis to people, as opposed to trying not to use any Christian or biblical terms and trying to kind of sneak in there. Going back to my introduction, when I said you had run for office at one point, why don't you share a little bit with our listeners what that was like, why you did it, how you proceeded, and since you're the headmaster of a Christian school and a priest at a church, I guess they're going to assume that you didn't win that election. <laughs> That's right. Well, I have a, a long history in uh, California politics with the Republican Party. I was the vice president of the California Republican Assembly. I worked in the state assembly as a press secretary for a state assemblyman. And then I started a consulting company working on private companies, you know, zoning and regulation issues. And then in the process of that, I had the opportunity in a small city where I was living, to run for public office to fight what I considered to be a local corruption scheme with uh, local unions. And part of my reason for running was to give the gentleman who was 
rather corrupt. He was using campaign donations for his personal expenses and really didn't represent any type of Christian values. But it gave me an opportunity to bring to light issues that I think were important. And that's really uh, what I think is missing in our discussions about politics is we have in our mind these deadlines or these end of games that are like every two years, there's a new congressional election or every four years, there's a new presidential election. And as Christians, we behave as though the entire world depends on one election. When the reality is, as faithful Reformation Christians who believe that Christ is Lord over not just the four years, but over the next millennia or several millennia, I have a longer view of history. And so when I considered running for public office, it was not that I'm going to change the world, some local mayor's seat in some small city, but rather that we were going to start building a coalition of people who thought like us and using what we called wedge issues, things like private property, public safety, to begin identifying the people who would be our allies, who we could then work at our local community with to build like-minded people. You see, too many of us pay attention only to the top of the federal hierarchy. We think that the president is the most important race. But Reconstruction teaches that that hierarchy is simply the opposite. It is the people who are at the local level who have the biggest impact on your life. And we see that firsthand in local elections. Uh, in our community there, we had something called a Melaru, which is like a property tax. And that's going to have more of an impact on my family. You know, the property tax that's taken uh, for new housing development, for local libraries, for local schools, for all these different government programs, that has a much larger impact on my day-to-day than whether or not President Trump is meeting with Kim Jong-un. But where do we as Christians focus all of our efforts? You know, we're focusing on the thing where our vote doesn't really even matter. Instead of spent sending our $100 check to our local city councilman, we're sending our you know, $300 check to an election we have no bearing on whatsoever, which is especially true here in California, where no matter who I vote for for president, because of the voter registration, the Democrats are going to count this state, right? <laughs> so... Right. Uh, That's part of what I learned uh, from H.L. Richardson, who lived here in in Northern California. And he was talking about that there are certain principles in the scripture that appeal to everybody across the board. And this is one of the things we'll discover when you begin to study the law of God, is that no single political party or some political official can contain all of God's responsibilities, right? Because God is gives the state certain roles, and yet man has misconstrued those to be all kinds of different things. We have said that the right is about crime and punishment, and the left is about you know caring for the victim. This false dichotomy has been created with two, two different political parties, but God's law has the solution for both. You know, he has the solution for the victim, and he has the solution for the criminal, and those are the perfect solutions. Uh, so when a Christian gets involved in public office, Uh, We don't have to appeal to what will get us elected. Instead, the anthropology, the the human nature, and what they will be attracted to, what they'll vote for, what solutions will actually be the most pragmatic, are the ones given by God. So it sounds to me, and this isn't a new concept, that the end goal of running for office isn't just to get elected. I mean, you better say, 
if I am elected, I will hold the office and then I'm not just doing it for a fluke because I know there's no possibility I'll be elected. But it sounds like having conversations and having the opportunity to have conversations. So as somebody who's running for mayor of a small town in Northern California, you can knock on a door and say, hello, I'm running for mayor. And you have a conversation with someone and you can start influencing them and be the camel getting the nose under their tent in as much as if you're just an average guy knocking on the door, they're not likely to talk to you. That's right. Well, in my election, we were only a thousand votes away from winning the mayor after me living in the city for one year. So I imagine if I were to stay in that city for another 10 years and build those relationships and get to know the people, put my inroads in the chamber of commerce, put my name alongside the folks on the rotary, you know, have my name seen amongst the church, that there would be a very good possibility of picking up those last thousand votes. But that's really the secondary issue. The reason people win elections is because they built a community around them. And that's really a Christian idea, is that you coalesce people around subsidiary issues and, and you allow those local communities to build up. Now, when I worked for other candidates as like campaign manager or things like that, we would always look for a certain kind of young man to work for us. And there were two types of young men that we really liked working for us. One of them were homeschool boys who had done like Boy Scouts, who had learned to be individually responsible, who had gone on their camping trips or maybe they had their Eagle Scout, or we'd look for Mormon students who had done their two-year mission because they would come to the campaign and they would get started building communities based on those type of values. Right? They weren't afraid to go knock on a door. They weren't afraid to follow orders. They weren't afraid to do something and be rejected. Uh, that's really what I think the problem with a lot of people interested in politics today is they're conflict averse. They're afraid of going into a situation where they might lose, or they're afraid to going into a situation where somebody might know more than them, or they're afraid to go into a situation where they're going to be uncomfortable being around people who are different from them. But the Lord says we are more than conquerors, and we should go in with strength and with the Spirit of God to conquer these areas, to occupy them for the kingdom. I'm sad to say, Steve, though, there are some believers who would actually go in afraid to win because somehow or other that would mess up their eschatological view or it would require work. You see, if we believe everything we see in the media or read in novels or watch in movies, we think that things happen in a certain way and everything is nice and neat and pretty. Well, you just pointed out, and I'm sure some people would be horrified that you said you liked Mormons working for you because after all, is it Mormonism a cult? And, and so address the mindset that would find that a bad way to go. And secondly, the idea of being afraid to win. Well, first of all, we, we live in a world full of people. And these people are at various stages of their relationship with God. The people who belong to the Mormon cult are far, far away from our Lord Jesus. But the only way to bring them in is for them to have a preacher, for them to have somebody share that with them. And so there's this idea that we're going to have a small remnant of people. They're going to bunker down till the end, and then the Lord will come and save us from this world. That's not the, the picture we get from Jesus. That's some modern 
19th century tent revival idea that's been proven wrong by the patristic authors, by the medieval authors, and by John Calvin and the Reformation authors. This is not the spirit of the Puritans. They believed in a gospel that was reforming each generation, and the church was getting stronger, more triumphant, and better. John Maxwell, John Calvin Maxwell, I should say, the leadership guru, talks about this idea that the best churches, right, the best churches, the most successful churches, the most impactful churches haven't been born yet. They haven't been created yet. The most successful Christian organizations haven't been founded yet. So what does that mean if we have giants like like Calvin, if we have giants like Luther and, and Knox, we have giants like Dr. Rush Juni and Cornelius Van Til? It means that in our eschatology, we believe that the next generation of leaders are going to be even more profound, even more articulate, even more effective at reaching the next generation. Now, if your perspective is that, that the best churches and the best organizations have not even been created yet, then that requires you, where you are today, to begin nurturing, building, and developing those leaders for tomorrow. So that means finding the Mormon who has great leadership skills, who has organizational skills, and then taking his heart and offering him an opportunity to use those God-given gifts for the purposes of God's kingdom. So what you're saying is, let's not forget that we're here to make disciples, and we don't decide, well, because he's a Mormon, or because he has tattoos, or because he comes from a background that's very antithetical to what the Bible says, that we can't utilize all the law and all the gospel to be able to affect change in our communities, but also in that person's life. That's right. That's right. And the other thing is, we always, because we're the conservative or because we're the Christian or because we're the chosen people of God, we allow ourselves to be constrained by non-biblical rules that we make up that the other side, the humanists, don't follow, right? So <laughs> I see this in, in politics all the time. You know, we want to be too nice. We want to be too courteous, too kind, too effusive. We want to just kiss babies and we just want to talk about the nice issues. But we live in a world where the, the other side is going to lie, cheat, and steal in order to keep Christ out of the classroom, out of the government, and out of your family. And so we are in a very real battle. And so we need to be more like Abraham and call all of the men in our house and all of the slaves in our tribe and all of the men that we've captured to fight not just for the good things, but for the kingdom and for the promises to be fulfilled here on earth. That's really a good way to look at it. I think back to the election where Ron Paul was running for president, and there was a tremendous amount of enthusiasm, especially among young people. And at the time, I thought, we really need to capitalize on this because these young people are really, really getting the idea of liberty because that's what Ron Paul talked about. And so that's when actually you and I first started working together when Calcedon had the Law and Liberty Tour in 2013 and 2014 as a way to get people past just the idea of politics and the whole idea of that liberty is only possible with God's law. And to be honest with you, I was quite disappointed because 
it seemed that a lot of the people who gravitated to Ron Paul gravitated to him because it was a new thing and it was different, not because they had this desire for liberty. And I think the missing ingredient was the idea that liberty is not possible unless God's law is followed. Right. I mean, there's, of course, two definitions of liberty. There's the humanist definition, which we see in the French Revolution. You know, freedom from God is, is their definition of liberty. Those are their ideas, that there was freedom from any type of restrictions. And the French Revolution failed because it led into anarchy. An antinomian paradise ended up being the death of people, the death of liberty, the death of freedom. The American Revolution, founded on Christian principles, a Christian idea of liberties, went the other direction. It allowed liberty, that is, freedom under God, to flourish because it gave these structures to how we might protect the individual divisions or the individual spheres of life. Because what we miss about liberty is that liberty is not the freedom to do whatever we want. Liberty is the freedom to do what we were made to do, right? The freedom to be who God has created us to be. It's the freedom for us to be a family and to respect the boundaries of the father and the mother and the family. It's the freedom for us to honor the human institution to protect victims and to punish wrongdoers through the sphere of the government. And so what I think is missing in all of these discussions is we have fallen into kind of Marxist dialectics. We have said, instead of the comparison being the humanist versus God or the sinner versus God's law, we have said it's class warfare. It's men versus women, or it's the rich versus the poor, or it's the Republican versus the Democrat. We've allowed Marxist class warfare to define our political talking points. And I think that really was part of what I learned after the whole enthusiasm for Ron Paul, that the people who were serious, and, and don't get me wrong, I believe Ron Paul understands liberty. I don't think he looks at it in terms of license by any stretch. But I think a lot of the people, when they didn't get their their win, when they didn't get the, well, see, we put all this effort in and this is the immediate result, I think they decided that that means that the pursuit of liberty needed to stop, as opposed to what you said earlier in terms of really focusing on the local level so that you not only build a community of people who you can have support you, but you can support them by educating them on the things they don't know, especially if they're relying on what they learned in state schools. Well, there's another part, another dynamic of this that's not so pure. And uh, Dr. Gary North talks about this because he was, similar to me, a, a legislative aide. You know, he worked in uh, Congress as a legislative aide. And so he saw what I saw, that it's the people who are working in the hallways, uh, what we might call bureaucrats uh, and, and campaign staff and capital staff, who are really moving the items around here. It's not necessarily the titular or figurehead that's setting the policy. And people don't think about this, but think of uh, the term limits that exist in the California state uh, capital, for example. You know, there's eight-year limit for an assemblyman. So that means that every eight years, or even every four years, these men who's got elected and spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to be elected 
are shuffled off to the next thing. Sometimes they go from assembly to senator to insurance commissioner or whatnot. But what's important for you to remember is that the bureaucrats or the, the office workers who write the bills, who craft the stuff, the professionals who work inside the building, they largely stay the same. This happens in the Capitol in Sacramento, and this happens in the Capitol in D.C., is you have the lobby groups and you have the Capitol staff who are setting the tone, who are the same people. And so when a freshman Republican lawmaker gets into Congress, he's assigned a bunch of people who didn't get elected to write his bills, to give him counsel, to give him advice. And the problem is, if Christians are not engaged in filling those positions, then it's the pagans, the humanists that fill those positions. Now, there's some fun stories here, but the, the point being, there are more than one way to affect political change than just being the person sitting in the seat making the vote. The people who are forming the local lobby groups or the who are sitting in the offices have a much larger influence, especially if they're a group or community at a local level. So the idea that politics is a dirty business and no good Christian should be part of it is really just a way to say the status quo continues or things get worse. That's right. Right. And I mean, we have to recognize that, um, and H.L. Richardson uses this kind of example, that politics is kind of like uh, the business of trial lawyers. So trial lawyers are interested in dragging out a case as far as possible, right? They want to bill as many hours. They want to take as much time. <laughs> they want to have as many hearings and witnesses as possible because that's how they make their money. The humanists who come into these seats have the same type of, of perspective. They want to maintain and hold on to that authority. The conflict is that God's law wants to decentralize all of these things. And so the temptation for Christians, and I know this was true during um, the Bush era, is we want to come in and we start wanting to replace the, the, you know, the humanist structures with Christian structures. One a good example of this was um, instead of doing a Democrat education program, George W. Bush believed we should do no child left behind. It would be a Republican education program. And so they replaced one inflated bureaucracy with an even larger inflated bureaucracy. Well, the, the Christian perspective is to dismantle the whole bit and get rid of it and return the education of children back to their parents. Uh, and, but there's a natural conflict there that the people who are in that bureaucracy are going to work against that idea. So you're not going to dismantle it from the top down. You have to start at the local level, embracing homeschooling, building Christian schools, and showing them to be a valid and powerful alternative to government programs. And so that's a perspective that I don't think a lot of people understand. Every campaign talks about problems and solving the problems. But what you're saying is, and I think what is pretty observable, the last thing people want to do to secure their position is to solve the problem. Because if they solve the problem, then someone might get the idea, well, then we don't need this many bureaucrats. We don't need these many people to tell us how to run our lives. And so there's a vested interest in keeping the problems coming and not really solving them. Yes, that's right. And going back to the original question, should, should we develop a platform that appeals to a large group of people and then change our mind when we get elected or should we tell the truth and never get elected? I think both of those are not what we're going for as Christians. I want you to think of Joseph and the famine in the land. Uh, 
God gives through his revelation the solutions for a time such as this. There is no better solution for the top hot button issues, you know, terrorism, war in the world, crime, punishment, education. There's no better solution than what God's word has said. Just like at the time of, of Joseph, there was no better solution for Egypt than to listen to God's revelation that their famine was coming, therefore store up the food. I'm sure that there were there were buyers and sellers and bureaucrats who disagreed with Joseph's uh, prognostication. But at the end of the day, it was coalescing the group around this idea, the idea of succeeding that made Joseph you know, lifted up to this place of being a vice regent. The same thing is true for Christians today. It's how we communicate that God's truth comes to bear on these hot button issues that matters and continuing to demonstrate how the most pragmatic thing we can do is to follow God's way, to follow God's law. Right, because that's <laughs> the blessings and curses don't escape you when they're coming from him. <laughs> that's right. Well, and here's another thing that or a listener may or may not be considering is consider how many people are on the spectrum of active political bodies. So maybe in a given community, there's a few hundred thousand people, right? Of those, only about 30% of them vote. So, so quickly, you're dropped down to just a few tens of thousands of people. Um, and then of those who vote, only about 10% of them are active in the actual political education and instruction. And then of those 10%, only 1% of them are these extreme people who hold these views and are willing to go and knock on the door. So if you live in a community of a few hundred thousand people, how many actual individuals do you have to know before you can affect a change on this whole thing? If you live in a community of a hundred thousand people, you only have to know a few dozen people before you start changing the entire conversation. But the Christian who allows the top to distract him is going to feel so overwhelmed by having to change millions of ideas before they make any progress that they're forgetting the influence they have today in whatever city they're in. Now, I live in the Silicon Valley, and so there's lots of people here. But you may only live in a community of a few thousand people. And I'm telling you that if you make inroads with just a few dozen leaders, that you're going to change the trajectory of your city. I think that's what people should hear when they think about politics. Not what issue am I going to change? What silver bullet am I going to come up with that wins the election? But what are the leaders or who are the leaders in my community that are going to allow me to start transforming this community in terms of God's law? And uh, there's a gentleman named Tom Woods who's written a book uh, called Nullification probably about 10 years ago now. And he talks about this type of idea that local strength is how the American Constitution was built to function. We have a, an issue in our country that uh, millions of children are killed in the womb. Uh, since 1973, but no one is willing to be confrontational at a local level. Really, all it would take for us to turn the tide in one of these states is for some local city or county sheriff to refuse to allow abortions to happen in their city, to be a local leader who arrests the abortionists or refuses, or a local city council that passes a local ordinance banning abortion in their city or municipality and force the issue up the chain. That's much more impactful than starting at the federal level and trying to gain millions of people around you and, and trying to work it down. Which goes back to why 
a deliberate and purposeful Christian education is so important because your whole understanding of politics, of governance, of what it means to be a free person, what it means to be in a republic as opposed to a democracy, you're not going to get it in a state school at any level, grammar school, high school, or even college, because there's this vested interest in keeping the status quo. And so when Christians decide to get serious and reprove fellow Christians for putting their children under the tutelage of people who, even if they profess Christ, don't live out the biblical world and life view, that they can't really expect there to be any significant change. And that's why Chalcedon, I know you are, and lots of other people are so adamant on bringing biblical law and Christian education together because if you're going to be the person who says, I'm going to solve the problems or try to solve some of the problems on the local level biblically, you've got to be a good teacher and you've got to be somebody who's willing to have a long-term view that maybe it's not you that actually succeeds in that, but maybe people you influence, people you train. And so I think it always comes back to education being Christian as opposed to deciding it doesn't really matter who teaches our children. That's right. And education of where we are in our local communities. Rushdoony's quote goes something like, history has never been dominated by majorities, but by dedicated minorities. Groups of people like you and your church or you and your community, that's what changes the world. It's so strange to think that a small community in Geneva, Switzerland, change the whole course of Western civilization. It's so strange to think that a small church in the Church of Scotland under John Knox changes the course of really America. It's because these small dedicated communities stand by the law, word of God. And when we talk about politics, we should remember what those men said. Things like John Knox, who said, with God, you are never in the minority, right? So you plus God is always the majority because God is always on the winning side. Exactly. All right. Well, again, I want to thank the listener who sent in the question, and I would encourage other listeners who say, I wonder what their take would be on this to go ahead and share with us at out of the question podcast at gmail.com. But let me make the recommendation that if you want a good primer in terms of all the aspects that we've been talking about, I really recommend if you haven't already read Rush Dooney's Law and Liberty, that you get a copy. And we have at Calcedon put together a whole series of study questions for individual group study. So if you're somebody who already understands this, has already read that book, why not consider starting a community book club that includes the discussion of Law and Liberty? And don't just restrict it to people who you already know will agree with you, because obviously there aren't too many people in most cities that even have a biblical world and life view. So be willing to open up your home or open up an opportunity to spend time with people because increasingly as humanism fails, people's pain points are going to get more pronounced. There's nothing that the Bible does better than address the human condition and the problems people have but sometimes people just have to have it be a little bit more intense than others. So that's my recommendation. Do you want to make any recommendations, Steve? 
Yes, I mentioned H.L. Richardson's books, Confrontational Politics, and What Makes You Think We Read the Bills. These are very short books, important to read. On the concept of liberty, there's a God and Government series written by Gary DeMar, which are very helpful to understand a Christian perspective on public office and government. And Dr. George Grant over at Parish Press just recently published An Experiment in Liberty uh, with his new ministry called Stand Fast, which is excellent to show how their early American founders were in a very position that we are, very same position that we are today, and using their Christian values to reestablish the republic. Excellent. All right. Well, until next time, always a pleasure talking with you, Steve, and we look forward to the next opportunity to discuss the question behind the question. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.